Welcome back to How to Tickle Yourself. I'm your host, Duff McDonald, along with my co-host, Mac McButter. Our guest this week has been a working actor for over 30 years. Wait, wait, wait. Stop, stop, stop. Who was that? I'm your host, Duff McDonald, along with my co-host, Matt McButter. I don't know who that was, but it sounds like someone was trying to impersonate me. As I was saying, our guest this week has been a working actor for over 30 years, and he has been an audiobook narrator for 26 of those 30 years, recording over 1,100 books in almost every genre. Wait, wait, wait. an audiobook narrator? Oh, I get it now. You're Sean Pratt. You're not Duff McDonald, but I know why you sound so familiar. You play me in the audio version of myself. Seriously, folks, it's a weird and wonderful thing to have as a guest today. The man who has told my story as completely as I have. If you listen to the audiobook version of Tickled, you are listening to Sean Pratt's award-winning voice, which has won him nine Earphones Awards from Audiophile Magazine, five Sofas nominations, and five Audi nominations from the Audio Publishers Association. Sean is also the author of To Be or Wanna Be, the top 10 differences between a successful actor and a starving artist, an actor's how-to book that talks about approaches and behaviors that separate a thriving actor from a starving artist. And when Sean isn't narrating the 1,101st book or whichever one he's on, he is coaching other performers on audiobook narration technique. We're excited to talk to him about how he finds the tickle and all the stories that he tells. It's great to have you with us today, Sean. Welcome to the show. I'm really excited to be here. Thank you, Doug. After present moments, traveling town to town, the mystery of the motion. Right here, right now. Right here, right now. Whoa, right here, right now. You know, as a writer, I've uh, written five books or so. Uh, To look at your numbers, you have narrated over a thousand audio books uh one how do you find the time and b how do you how does one end up you know how long has that taken you how long you've been doing well i guess we know 26 years but like what at what pace are you are you outputting these things you're doing one a week you're doing one a month so when i started in 1996 um i was going to start narrating books i just relocated from New York City, where I'd been doing classical theater off-Broadway for a long time, down into Washington to sort of start my life over uh, with my girlfriend at the time. And um, uh, I was sort of at loose ends because some theater work I'd lined up fell through, but I remembered a conversation I'd had with an actor in Washington, D.C. in 94 when I was down there doing a play. And he had mentioned that he did audiobooks, and he said, well, if you ever you know, come down here, I can introduce you to some people. 
And so he did. And I followed up on it. And that's sort of how I got into it. And initially, the it was just going to be one more thing that I did. I was going to, you know, I was going to do, you know, this play and work on this movie or TV show. And I was a corporate spokesperson at conventions and, and do an audiobook. And, but very quickly, after a couple of years, I realized I was, by that time I was getting out of theater. I was going to be getting married. I'm going to have a baby who's now just turned 22. Um, and then, um, uh, but the, the, the books became more and more steady income as a freelance performer. And as you know, as a freelancer, steadiness is a nice thing to have. Mm-hmm. And um, probably by around the year 2000, I pretty much stopped doing any theater, went full-time audiobooks. I do some film and TV when it would happen, but that was very episodic. Um, and around that time, I started doing literally one book a week. I did 50 books a year for years and years and years. And it's only recently, within the last three or four, that I now probably only do 25, 30 tops. So, but a book, of course, I've done books that were 10 hours long and books that were 100 hours long. So the term book is an elastic term as far as how much time it takes to record it. You know, but generally the normal nonfiction piece is around 10, 10 hours long. So hmm. how do you, how do you, um, how do you get inside the head of, uh, the writer of the book? Um, and do you, uh, is there a shift from book to book to book where you, oh, yeah. where you, where you really tr- ch- switch it up? How do you do so, that? So the thing, since now, I mean, when I started, I narrated lots and uh, tons and tons of fiction. But around the time I went full time in the late 90s, I went back to my clients and I said, I want to go full time. I will narrate anything that nobody else wants. And they began to send me nonfiction, which is where I discovered how much I enjoyed it. And, and truth be told, even as a teenager in my 20s, if I was given a choice between reading a book about how they built the pyramids. I prefer that than mummies chasing people around the pyramids, if you know what I mean. I always <laughs> like nonfiction. So, um, so when I began to perform it, I realized there's a lot of traps involved in nonfiction. People think that nonfiction to perform it means there's non-acting. It's, there's no acting involved, but that's not true. And so what I do and what I teach to get in, help my students and myself get into the piece is something I learned uh, as a child working in the theater. It was called your acting triangle. And then you ask yourself three questions and you answer them completely. Then you make yourself believe in it. And now you're ready to start acting. I, I started acting locally here in Oklahoma City where I live uh, and at school with the local theater group since I was about 10. Um, so the triangle is really simple. So it's who are you, where are you, and who are you talking to? Mm. So who am I? Of course, the character I'm portraying is always the author, right? But I don't try to become the author literally. So when I did your book, I wasn't watching YouTube videos trying to mimic your speech pattern, which is obviously different from mine. Um, because then, then, you know, what happens if you had, you know, I always joke, like, what happens if you were uh, a Cajun from Louisiana who had a stutter? I'm not going to be doing that on the recording. What you're looking for is I turn the author into an archetype. So a freelance writer who's been writing lots of business-related material, now he wants to write this personal piece. Or I could be a restaurant coach. 
or I could be a mathematician, or I could be, you know, whatever. And I do research on YouTube to see, sort of get a flavor for the person, and maybe they also give me information about the project. So that's who I am, the archetype of that author. And then I build a backstory to give myself, where am I and who am I talking to? And these are critical for, to make believe in the performance. So where am I is a, I always try to make it a place that I've actually been to. Um, the, uh, uh, you know, whether it's Grauman's Chinese Theater or a lecture hall at Harvard or um, the, one of the conference rooms at the MGM uh, in Las Vegas, someplace I've actually been to and worked. And I give myself a physical space. And then, the, then who wow. are you talking to is different. Because when you, when we're, if you've ever, uh, when people do commercial voiceover work, you're taught to, to narrate the copy where you're, whether you're selling cornflakes or cars, you sell it to one person. So you, you know, that's your, you're talking to your, your next door neighbor or your brother or your dad or whatever. But that didn't work for me in nonfiction because it pulled the energy of the piece down. It became too intimate and just the energy didn't go out like I wanted. So when I narrate a book, it is always to a room filled with people. Now, the mm. size of the room and the number of people can vary to whatever feels right. So it could be five people around a conference table, 50 people in a room, or 5,000 people in a huge amphitheater. So when I did your book specifically, um, it felt like I was at a real, uh, I was, there was a, a place I went up to uh, just outside of Boston. It's a, a corporate retreat area. And then I remember there was this really nice open out, outdoor amphitheater. They would do conferences and meetings outside. And it just felt really great. It was bucolic and, and really relaxed atmosphere. So that was the place I was at. And then the audience for every book is always an interested audience. So in this case, people interested in whether it's, you know, Zen Buddhism or living in the present moment or struggling with different issues that are related to the topic of the book. So the audience is always, in my mind, an engaged, happy, enthusiastic audience. So when you put all that together, I, in my mind's eye, when I narrated your book, I was standing on that, in that conference space outside, talking to those people, working the room, as you'd say. And so the shorthand term I use for that when I teach it is TED Talk. Narrating nonfiction, broadly speaking, is like giving a TED Talk. And that's what, and so then what happens is your book actually becomes my script or the transcript of what I said during that presentation. Does that make sense? <laughs> totally. I had no, I, this. I had no idea. <laughs> yes. And, and thank you for coming to my TED Talk. I'll be right. I, I thought it was just, you know, stay two inches away from the microphone. Right? <laughs> that, that's amazing. Well, there, is so, that. there is that too. I mean, trust me, I'm, we're, well, I'm doing the basic editing while I record it, but you do that for so long. It's like playing the piano. I don't even look at the keyboard anymore. That's just when you're in that kind of create, you know, what is it? Create a flow that Mihai Csikszentmihalyi talks about. Um, but no, you have to make it like that because when you, there's a lot of bad nonfiction recordings out there and I can spot them very quickly because the, the narrator just sounds disengaged. Mm. They're just mm. grinding their way through it. Or God forbid, you should have to listen to stuff that's AI generated like on YouTube or wherever. Um, so, so it's it, every book you will ever listen to let me do there is a triangle behind it just know that and that's what i teach my students and cool. uh, it really does it really does connect them to the material 
You mentioned the the AI modulated stuff. Does that do you think it's improving? And do you are you, does it like worry you in your line of work that at some point it will start to get so good that you know your your profession could be in any kind well, of jeopardy? It's already here, and I think instead of saying AI, what we need to say is text to speech. Okay, so in that construct, you're going, you know, they'll be doing phone trees and corporate, you know, to help you get your prescription at CVS kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, some e-learning will go to AI. Some corporate narration will as well. Um, of course, there's that one program I've seen on YouTube where for college students where they can just take a picture of a page and it narrates it to them. But the problem with AI, there's a lot of problems with AI right now. And the main one is cognition. It's, it's hard for people to remember what AI tells them because, you see, AI doesn't have an opinion about what it's telling you. It's just saying the words. Mm. And one of the key underlying things that happens in a performance is I always say, you always ask yourself, how does the author feel about the topic they're discussing? Because that influences the way I perform. Mm-hmm. So that's one Achilles heel with apps. Another one, though, to me, the biggest one, and this is, I'm not for, to quickly answer your question. No, it's not going to take my job away, mm-hmm. and that's one reason why. I'll give you another one. AI does not have a sense of humor, or irony, or sarcasm. Mm-hmm. So imagine, mm-hmm. imagine those moments in Duff's book where he he he's funny. He said mm-hmm. something that's wry or sarcastic, or even a straight up set up punchline kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. AI cannot recognize that. And even mm-hmm. if you had an engineer that sort of could maybe kind of sort of tweak the melody of the language to make it, you know, humor is a really particular thing. It comes in all different stripes, different flavors, and AI can't do that. And I can never see a point in the future that AI, I mean, something as simple as Canadians have a different sense of humor than Americans. So do you have Canadian AI narrate a Canadian book? And what does that imply into the performance? Right? <laughs> right. Um, yeah. And then you just have little things too. There's, there's subtle melodic. I mean, when you're listening to a person speak, the communication, you know, since it's just audio, we don't get any visuals. You're relying on the melody, rhythm, and tempo of the speech itself. And it's those little subtle changes of notes, you might say, or the melody that sound odd. So when you're listening to something, you know, even if it's a real person and they say a word in the wrong melody, you know, or they end right. everything with a question or whatever. After a while, that just throws you. And AI still has those bugs. So by the time you hire an engineer to fix all those things for a 10-hour book, you could have hired me. And I yeah. would do a job that's 100 times better. So no, I, it's, gonna, it's going to take over some more automated things that don't require a lot of sewy shape, like performance stuff. Business transactions. And like exactly. you said, yeah. like but, mm-hmm. but, you know, you need to have, I mean, it's one of the, once again, it's one of the things I teach my students. A paragraph by paragraph, every paragraph, more or less, is an examination of one tiny idea, okay, an iota. And if you look carefully enough, the author will give you a clue as to how they feel about that idea, either explicitly, like, oh, I hated this, or it could be a little more nebulous. You might have to do a little more detective work, but the author definitely has an opinion. Mm-hmm. AI doesn't recognize that. And that's one of the reasons why it's so flat. So that's my, so, that's my so, story and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> so do you, um, you know, when, when, uh, when we were looking for, or when Harper was in the process of selecting 
uh, narrator for Tickled, uh, they sent me your name and said, what do you think? Uh, and, you know, obviously I was like, yes, this is our guy. Um, do you get sent books and then you go go back and say, I would, um, th- this one I'm not interested in, this one I am interested in? How do you decide on your projects? Usually, well, it's a, it's a bit of a complicated thing. I, once again, I'm going to keep referencing my work as a teacher, but it's what I do for a living. So anytime I'm offered a job, I ask myself three questions. What will it do for my career? Will I make any money? And will I have any fun? Will I be tickled, right? Mm-hmm. And I've used that formula for almost 30 years now. And so when I say yes to a job, sometimes you say yes to a book that you may not personally be excited about, but Harper's asked me to you know, not, I mean, like, let's say Harper, let's say the next one they send me is a book on, you know, blockchains and Bitcoins and AI or whatever. And it's a really dense piece, really challenging, very academic. But Harper asked me to do it. And I know that Harper will then, maybe the next book they give me is another book like yours that I'm like, wow, this was fantastic. So sometimes you say yes to a project because of the politics involved of mm-hmm. being a narrator. Um, usually when I turn a book down, it's just scheduling issue. I just can't fit it in my schedule between my teaching and my, my own narration. I can't, you know, and I'm, I'm a really strong believer in don't overpromise because it'll always come back and bite you in the butt. Um, there have been books I will turn down. They tend to be, um, you know, well, my politics, I'm, I'm sort of a, uh, a center left or actually left. What am I, you know, I'm sort of an old fashioned tree hugging, dub smoking, solar powered liberal. You know, I, I, and <laughs> even though, even though I sometimes will do conservative pieces, that's fine. Um, if they're over the top or they're very aggressive in their stance, sometimes, but I, I, no kidding, I probably could count on my hands the number of times that's been the issue. So usually it's more of a scheduling issue. And I still get turned down for things, you know, um, many times, uh, it, it all depends on the contract the author has with when they sell the audio rights. So usually for a newer author, they don't get to pick, you know, if you sell it to Cantor or Harper, they're going to, you know, they have their five guys that they know each of them could do a great job and they'll pick one for you. But if you have that in your contract, like you did, they could say, okay, well, here's, uh, here's our five guys for you to pick from that we like. And so in that case, you usually got to turn in an audition and then the author will decide. And, and sometimes you get it and sometimes you don't, but that's just, you know, that's just being, that's just being an actor. You, you lose far more than you get. I once went to um, uh, a really fun performance night where a bunch of famous actors read from other famous actors autobiographies on stage it was a bit of a comedy thing right because the the autobiographies they chose were um kind of ridiculous um from what you were saying before in terms of imagining uh yourself in some milieu with an audience do you do and I'm not talking about acting um, proper, like in plays or stuff, but do you perform narration live? You know, it, every so often I will. Um, I've become so much more of a creature of the studio 
I mean, I grew up doing live theater. I started acting at 10 and I did classics all through my 20s and my 30s. So live theater was my well, the reason I became an actor. But um, you just don't get a lot of opportunities to do live readings. And usually when they do that, they have the, the author do it mm-hmm. for promotional reasons, which reminds me of a, if you, if you bear with me, I think I have an interesting anecdote that sort of speaks to authors narrating their own material, if you uh, want to hear it. Sure. Um, and so the year is 1990, I guess it's the summer of 93. Ooh, my first wife and I, yeah, good summer. Uh, my first wife and I, uh, we have been living in New York since 90. She was an aspiring writer. I was an aspiring actor. Uh, by this time in 93, I was working off Broadway with the Pearl Theater. It's a classical repertory theater. And it was in my, my second season there. But we moved to Midtown, uh, 9th and 54th. And um, what, it was during the summer when I, and I was in between, I was home from traveling and, and performing. And she said, hey, my, my writer's group, we're all going to go to this little amphitheater space near the Delacorte, the park. They're doing, uh, it was like politics and prose was hosting some kind of evening readings. For four authors were going to get up and read from their work. And she said, do you want to come? I said, yeah, I've never been, I had never been to anything like that before. So it's one of those places where you bring a blanket and your basket of cheese and wine and bread and you sit down under the stars. And that's what, you know. So we get there, we get seated, and there's a lot of people out there. And the MC, she comes out and introduces this first author. And this guy, it was, I think it might have been his very first book or maybe his very first time reading aloud. And he was a wreck. I mean, you could literally see the sweat flying off of him. You know, <laughs> he was underprepared. He was so nervous. He could barely speak. So that was our first guy. Second one comes out. This woman, uh, writer, um, she had obviously done a couple of these, but it felt like she was, she was bored. Like she didn't really want to be there. Like her agent was making her do the reading or something. So there was no, she got through it, but there was nothing behind it. If you know what, she wasn't really connecting with her own stuff. And the third person comes out, this guy, um, he was really nervous. He had been prepared, but I think he had one too many glasses of wine before he got up there because he was all over the place as well. So, so far from my perspective as an audience member, it was 0 for 3. And then out comes the star of the evening, Tom Robbins came out. Wow. Skinny legs and all, jitterbug perfume, all those, mm-hmm. right? Even the cowgirls. Get loose. And he yeah. came out and out comes, I seem to recall, out comes this sort of tall, courtly Southern gentleman. I think he's from the Carolinas. And he, he comes out and he just charms the audience, chatting with them, puts everybody at ease. And then he proceeds to read a couple of selections. And he was amazing. Amazing. He really performed the text. So evening's over. We gather our stuff. We're all walking back to our apartment with her group. And everyone's sort of, you know, talking about what they just saw. And then one of, uh, one of my wife's friends said, well, what do you think, Sean? And I said, well, I learned an interesting uh, thing tonight is that it's one thing to write a book. It is quite a different thing to perform that book. Mm-hmm. And that's when they all, they all ganged up on me. They were like, oh, Mr. Classical Theater Man. Oh, God. <laughs> but I, I stuck my ground. I said, I said, look me in the face and tell me that those first three authors were entertaining. They asked us to come sit out here on the ground, and I expected to be entertained like I was with Mr. Robbins. So you owe, I felt like the authors owed it to me as an audience member to try harder to put their stuff across. 
Now, granted, this is 1993. I hadn't even heard about audiobooks for a couple more years. But in that moment, I made an interesting connection between an author's ability to write amazing prose and their ability to put it across to an audience. And those are two separate disciplines. Hmm. And the first three are potential clients. Yes. <laughs> yes. I, well, you know, I also coach authors who want to narrate their own material. I do okay. that through a number of small media companies and people come to me privately. And yes, I will have many has been the time that I will start coaching the author and they realize that it's going to be a lot more preparation than they thought. It's give a lot us, more give, difficult. Give, give us oh. an example of like one, what's, a, what's one of the key things you tell an author about doing their own work out loud. Yeah. You've given us the triangle, well, right? right? Like that's the, the, the triangle. Thing. That's, yep. that's a great one. What? Yes. Yeah, so how about so, some tactical stuff? Like I, right. do you do like diction, you know, do you tell them to read, you know, like unique New York, unique <laughs> New York, like you see actors, all that kind of stuff. I, I, I don't have enough. There's no, usually there's not enough time. We usually have about three to four weeks tops. Mm-hmm. And they're, of course, they're in the middle of their own life. So I, I teach them the triangle the TED Talk concept, that they are actually performing it. Um, I set up a daily work schedule with them because this is a marathon. It's mentally, vocally, and physically far more taxing than they realize. Mm-hmm. You know, and, it, it, and they're going to do it in a really compressed time frame. Now, when I narrate by myself, I might turn out one finished hour a day, but I can spread that out in between students and at different times in the day. When you actually go into a studio to record, you're there for six to eight hours every day until it gets done. It's a real hardcore ultra marathon. Mm-hmm. And so I make them practice every day. And of course, that, that sort of throws them because they're like, well, I just read this chapter. I said, yeah, we'll read it better. We have to read it better. <laughs> One of the techniques I teach them is a concept I stole from the theater. We used to call it finding the spine of a speech. It's about finding the most important thing the character wants to put across to the audience and everything else that is around it is the illustrations or fun stuff. But you're trying to find the main idea. And so we do this, uh, I stole that idea and I use it in my own work and I teach them to find what I call the path through the paragraph. What is, every paragraph has an idea. Find it in the text and you highlight it, the sentences that thread through there. And then that's the part that you really want to make sure that you come across with that, listen to me, this is really important. And then everything else supports that idea. And I make them literally go through the entire text, highlighting that. To the, and it's really thrown some authors to the point that I've had authors rewrite sections of their book once they understand this concept. Ah, um, that's interesting. It's, well, you know, it, well you, you know, you understand as a nonfiction writer. When you read somebody else's nonfiction work, when I'm performing it, I get a chance to look inside your intellect. I get to see the idea you want to explore and how you want to explore it. And, you know, sometimes I've seen an idea which may be really sort of done a thousand times, but the author's take on it's really fresh. Likewise, I've seen really interesting ideas just get petered out because the author's writing is very scattered. It's not very focused with their intellect. It's sort of a I'm throwing a bunch of ideas on this page and some of them will stick. So I get to, I get to experience all that now after 1,100 books. I can see it very quickly. I can sort of hear the music of their thoughts. And, you know, what was nice about your, your book um, was how you would latch onto a main idea. You'd sort of, it's like a movement in the symphony. 
here I'm going to talk about this little section of what happened to me. And then you go into the variations of that idea as you tell us these little anecdotes and bits of exposition. But then you eventually bring it back down to the main idea, which is the concept of tickled. So the, the, the writing was very clear, and that makes my job um, a lot easier. Because at the end of the day, my job, well, a great narrator can tell a good story, even if the author didn't write one. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's my job. <laughs> to make so, you entertained regardless of the material. Okay, so for me, um, in terms of the writing, right, yeah. I have uh, spent a career in sort of serious nonfiction business stuff. And then uh, with Tickled, obviously, shifted to more memoir. And uh, for me, at least, it freed me up uh, in in how the words came out of me because... I was finally talking about the thing that I knew best of all, right? Which was what I right. was thinking about. Do you find, um, is, is memoir, um, uh, as a narrator, uh, easier to narrate than, uh, than nonfiction for, for a reason like that? Or was that just yes. a, it is? Yeah, no, it, it is actually, it's the closest thing that plays to fiction in the nonfiction genre. Cause if you think about it, you could have been a fiction writer who'd written that entire memoir as a fictional character, you see. So mm -hmm. first-person nonfiction memoir performs just the same as first-person fiction memoir, right? Mm -hmm. And it's great. So so what I love about the idea of the triangle, and and especially with memoir, it's as if I get to play Hamlet for 10 hours. But then mm -hmm. I'm the only one who ever gets that to play that version of Hamlet ever. Because this, you know, for all intents and purposes, my recording of Tickled is the definitive recording. Mm -hmm. So I have both the obligation and the challenge and the, the fun of turning in something that is really unique with that piece. So, yeah, it's, it's like a one-man show. It really is. And I, I really enjoy that. But that being said, it, you know, in the other kinds of nonfiction out there, whether it's business or technology, science, the arts, I still take the same approach. It's just it has more structure to it, you know. And then when they talk about the ten things of X Y Z, or you know, or some anecdote that has a teaching moment at the end, you're supposed to fill out. But with yours, with a memoir, it is. It's like you're playing a one person show. It's really, really wonderful. So, so um, my wife and I are currently now listening to uh, the Mahabharata. Um, the Indian spiritual mm -hmm. epic on Audible, and it is forty six hours. <laughs> what is, what uh, is the nothing. longest? What's the <laughs> longest book you've done? Um, in fiction, the longest book I've ever narrated was Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace. Oh Salt no! Way. Oh wow! Fifty seven <laughs> hours. I think it's the longest book I've ever read, too. Yeah, it, it was, was it was a, it was a year for me to finish. That. It, well, it took us a year to record it. Um, we the we didn't have a definitive. It was for Hachette, and we didn't have a hard due date on it. And the producer and I had a lot of other projects going on, so we would meet say once a month for a week, and we'd record about ten hours of it, and then we would go away from anywhere from six to eight weeks. And in that time, while I was recording other stuff. I had to prep the script because it's stream of consciousness writing. You have to really yeah. carefully, you know, where am I breathing? Where's the digressive clause? 
what am I hitting in the word? And of course, just the acting involved. But well, there, there's was, so many different voices that he writes yeah. in too, if I recall. I mean, oh my God, it's yeah. all over the place. And it's mm-hmm. wonderful. I mean, it's, it was the most challenging fiction I've ever narrated. Um, and I'm really proud of that piece. I, it, I'd never, people ask me, do you listen to your own stuff? And I thought, I tell them that I'd rather take a beating than listen to my own voice. <laughs> so <laughs> that's, that's, that's that's I was going to ask that. I mean, yeah. <laughs> So, you know, someone with, you know, like a, a sweet, buttery audio voice like you have, it's, you know, I think it's a pretty well-known kind of or common thing that people don't like to hear their own voices, right? Like ge- generally, I think most people don't like the sound of their own voice. Well, the, Maybe there's a bit of dif- dissonance between uh, the way it sounds to you when it's going through the bones in your head and the way that it sounds to you when it's been recorded. But mine, for instance, like I find it grating. It drives me crazy. I think many people do. You as well? Uh, you well no, when, like, when you first start out, you have that react. It's like when I first started doing movies and television, seeing myself on the playback or on the movie screen was so disconcerting, but you have to get past it. You have to push past it to get better. So there was an early period that was like that. But now what it is, is that, you know, I teach three students a day and I narrate for several hours a day and I do that six days a week. And you get to a point, you're just talked out. And to, so to listen to myself, it has, it's like, I just hear my own voice all the time, you know? And so there's only a handful of books that I'll go back to and listen for the, because the writing is so good. Um, Tickled being one of them, not to like stroke the ego even more than I have, but seriously, it's a great book. And so every so often I might go, oh yeah. And I, you know, for whatever reason, I'll pull it down into my, from my library and listen to it. But to answer your other question in nonfiction, the longest book I ever narrated there was uh, a two-volume biography of Abraham Lincoln by Michael Burlingham, and that ran 110 hours. Um, that was that was a single book. Now, the longest nonfiction series <laughs> was Richard Evans' three-volume books about the rise and fall of Nazi Germany, and that one clocked in at about 128 hours. Wow. Um, and then I did a five-volume history wow. of the state of California once. That was 150 hours <laughs> to do. Now, I didn't do it in one take. Thank you very much. But it was, <laughs> yeah. yeah. That, that one. <laughs> lots of coffee. Lots, yeah, of, lots caffeine. of caffeine. Well, you know, it's, it's that joke about how do you eat an elephant one forkful <laughs> at a time. So you just got to pace yourself every day to work your way through it, you know. But uh, no, Infinite Jest, was, I was really proud of that. And 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 the Abraham Lincoln piece, I'm very very proud of. They were very difficult, challenging pieces. Um, so yeah, yeah. But but to me, you, when you ask, it's not. I don't even count books anymore. I count hours in the day. How much mm-hmm. time am I clocking in? Because that's how you we get paid by the finished hour of the material. All right. So for for listeners who uh, like the sound of this man's voice, what uh, what are your um, what are some recent ones you've uh, that you've narrated that are, um, that are notable that they might want to check out. Yeah. So, um, well, obviously your book, which I really enjoyed. Um, and then, um, excuse me. Um, I did a science book recently called impact, which was about meteorites. And it Mm -hmm. sort of felt like what would be if Ryan Reynolds, Ryan Reynolds wrote a book on geology. It was really funny, really interesting, and very compelling. Um, I just, it was, it was a fantastic book. Um, let's see. Uh, 
I did a recently I've done a, a sort of a thriller romance. Um, oh goodness, I'm you're, I'm blanking now. You put me on the spot. Um, there are some books that I that I would recommend to a lot of people, and one that I that comes up again and again that's been a huge seller for me is "The Body Keeps the Score" by Bessel A. Van der Kolk. Ah, okay. And and that's a beautiful book. It's it's about how the body internalizes trauma, and uh, it's been translated into dozens of languages, and the, it's probably the largest selling audiobook I've ever worked on. Um, I did a book recently called Hidden Valley Road, which is about this family dealing with schizophrenia. They had 10 children and five, I think five or six of them presented as adults with schizophrenia. And it's a, it's a tragic, amazing piece. Um, wow. I did, uh, let's see, these might not be new, but uh, Fooled by Randomness. Oh. I, uh, Nassim Talal. Tell him. Yeah. A great, a real, yeah. And um, the, uh, that, it was a, just an interesting piece to explore. Um, and then, like I said, they, they tend to be non, the nonfiction pieces. Uh, one that really was interesting recent was called Mind Reader uh, by David Lieberman. And it's about um, how to decipher the way people behave, how they really think and what they really want and who they really are. It was a great sort of, uh, you know, how to read the room or how to read somebody. Um, um, and then, yeah, there's just every, every book. Is, yeah, so there, yeah, there, and, oh, I'll tell you another one that was interesting too. I thought, uh, it was called Evangelical Anxiety by Charles Marsh. It's a memoir. Uh, he's a little older than I am. So he's, I think he's about almost 60 now. And the story is about him growing up in this, the recently desegregated South. His father was a Baptist minister from a very sort of, evangelical strain and he struggled with anxiety and depression and unfortunately that the the sect he was part of viewed those kinds of illnesses as a gift from god that you were supposed to accept it as suffering and it's about his lifelong journey of overcoming that getting into psychoanalysis and therapy and it, it's a first person nonfiction memoir and it's a really compelling a really compelling story wow so those are the yeah those are the most recent ones that I can think of off the top of my head that might be interesting. But you do 1,100 books, they all start to meld a little bit <laughs> at the edge. Well, you end up being, you know, through your job, being ridiculously well-read, right? I mean, I tell people I'm job. very good at a cocktail party. I know <laughs> a little bit about everything. <laughs> it seems. Want to talk about polyvagal uh, theory and child rearing? I can talk about that. You know, you want to, you know, you want to talk about you know, uh, uh, you know, Wall Street trends for twenty twenty three? I can talk about that. You know. Incredible. Um, yeah, it's it's a it is. I mean, they do stick. If it's wow. well written, they stick. Yeah. Wow. Well, look, it was great having you, Sean. This was uh, uh, more than I hoped for. Um, so good. And great to have my audio doppelganger. Well, we know uh, now when you go on vacation, you can get as a guest host for the show. <laughs> <laughs> we exactly. appreciate it. And uh, for um, I, you sent them to me, but where I um, can't seem to find them now, you got a website. What's your web presence? So it's SeanPrattPresents.com. Mm -hmm. And that's for my coaching and uh, my narration work. You can find me um, all on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Uh, SP Presents is my handle. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I'm, it was my business, uh, 
platforms where I promote all the projects I'm doing and talk about my teaching and so on. Um, I'm getting ready to rewrite a book. Uh, speaking of writing, um, I'm taking my to be or want to be book. I'm giving it a 2.0 version and adding some new things. So that's my big challenge for next year. I'm very excited about that. And, cool. Do you um, want Duff to narrate that? Yeah, just, I was yeah, just going to offer. Yeah. yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, every every good turn here. Um, so yes, I'm uh, I'm looking forward to that as a project as well. But yes, you know, SeanPrattPresents.com. Good luck with that book, and uh, thanks for joining us today. It's been a blast. Oh, thank you thanks. for having me. I really appreciate it. Really fun. Cheers, Sean. Okay. So Sean Pratt, I got lucky with, uh, with, with him doing, uh, tickled, right? What a pro total pro and just, you know, it interesting storytelling. It's, it, it was fun. He d- it is, it must be strange for you. Have you listened to your entire book all the way through? No, I have not. Listen, I listened to a couple chapters, yeah. uh, for the very, for the same reason that, um, he talked about not, um, yeah, you know, needing to listen to listening himself. to your own. I stuff. don't need. To, I've read my own book, yeah. so many times already uh, that I didn't need to listen to the whole thing. Uh, but I have listened to a couple chapters of him, and it's great. He's he had a he he totally um, engaged with the material. Yeah. Right. Like it, it was not someone just reading it into a thing. And um, he is the triangle, of course. Right. The, the ginger is, Yoda. They call him they the gin- ginger Yoda. And I love his triangle. Right. The I actually made notes. Who am I? The archetype. So he wasn't trying to sound like you, but he was basically trying to be an archetype of you. Where am I? So he envisioned you like talking like telling your story of tickle to a very engaged group of listeners. And then, uh, you know, in, in some environment, right. Who, right. who am I, where am I? And who am I talking to? I, I like that. I actually liked, he had another triangle too. He's, um, you know, he's, he's into uh, triangle, triangular theories. I like that. Like it's a nice lens to, it's like, okay, put it through three. He, his other triangle was for whether he takes a gig or not. Right. Like, right. Will it make, is it of interest to me? Will it further my career? Will I make money from it? Yeah. Right, which is, I think I have kind of operated with that triangle, but not um, explicitly. Yeah, I think me as well, but not explicitly. Like, I think I make that calculus just not out loud. It's like uh, a silent calculation. <laughs> you and I both perked up when he said Infinite Jest, uh, yes. one of the great pieces of fiction. Yeah. Our, um, our uh, previous guest, Malcolm Fitch, uh, is the only person. I know maybe other than Sean Pratt, who's read Infinite Jest twice. Yeah, that's that's that would be too much for me. Although it does inspire, I've thought about picking it up again. It does still sit on my bookshelf, like it's not kind of in storage. I've I've got it, I've got it out there to remind me what a I mean amazing feat it was. Just what an amazing feat of, of literature. And I've thought about cracking it again. Rather than crack it again, I might get the audiobook that Sean right. does and throw it in the car and like listen to it next time I'm on a long road trip or several long road trips. Several long road trips. <laughs> Did he say it's like 46 hours or something? Something yeah. insane. It's yeah. long. So yeah. you got to make sure cool. you're driving to Florida and back. Yeah. 
Well, it would, that comes back to my New York years around, you know, right around the turn of the millennium. And you recommended that book to me. And I remember I picked it up and I read it in about maybe the year 2000, 99 or 2000. And I read it. It, it was, it was an entire year for me, <laughs> you know, cause it was also, you know, you're out in New York having dinner, you come back and you're like, oh, I have big ambitions to like tear through 20 pages, read half a page, fall asleep. <laughs> Yeah. And, um, it's also one of those books that it's like, it must've been a beast to narrate because you cannot Mm -hmm. get, you can't let your mind stray in that book or you are lost. And we didn't ask him, but I wonder how he dealt with all of the end notes. I I meant to, I forgot. Yeah. Cause it's got like 200 pages of end notes, right? That, and, and if you don't refer to them, sometimes you can't tell what's going on because a lot of them, He's constantly throwing, uh, you know, different uh, an- uh, anagrams in there. I, I, sorry, he's constantly throwing different acronyms in there. And those acronyms, you can't really follow the story unless you know what that acronym is, right? It's mm-hmm. like the year of the Tux medicated pad or something like that, because the years have all been sponsored. So it's like mm-hmm. the Y-O-T-M-P. And you're like, what was that again? You know, flip into the back, flip into the end. Right. I remember having a finger in the back so that I didn't have to find the footnote page or I would bookmark the footnote page. Me too. I had two bookmarks going when I read that book. Yeah. Crazy. Uh, No, that's great. Um, It's really impressive too. The no wonder he's such a successful um, narrator, right? He's Mm -hmm. one of the top guys in the industry. Uh, because of a kind of discipline, but um, or a discipline, but also I love the fact that he's focused on the enjoyment of it and getting into like the heart of people's um, message. It's the tickle. He's looking for the tickle in it, and um, it's like, uh, yeah, no, just kind of blown away by all that. Yeah, me too. And speaking of the tickle, I think we should acknowledge this is the first uh, episode that we've recorded after um, after our big award, after taking home the hardware from the uh, the podcast awards. That was quite quite a pleasant surprise. Um, you know, when I have to say, I, w- I was taken a little bit aback. I didn't. I was really surprised that we that we won, and I felt like. I needed to thank more people. So, you know, if anyone else is listening, I, I I would like to also thank, we thank the Storic group, obviously, for putting this thing together. Um, wanted to also thank uh, Alfred Hopton specifically. We didn't call him out for, for um, you know, for all of his help and booking guests and so on. Um, and then on the home front, I forgot to thank uh, my family for putting up with me, um, you know, building a little podcast studio in the basement and telling everybody they're not allowed to uh, stream anything when I'm recording because uh, it kills the bandwidth in the house and not to walk around and not to flush the toilet and not to make any noise and to make sure that the dog was quiet. Thanks everybody for, uh, for helping, you know, for the support. Well, well, Duff and I made this podcast. And we, I forgot to thank, uh, our three VIP uh, regulars, Joey, Marguerite, and Luke. Uh, so yeah, so thank you to those guys, uh, to the people who helped us make it. Uh, yeah, Thanks. no, it was a, it's a bit, it's a bit of a thrill. So anyone out there who has I um ideas for guests is another one. So people who are listening, if you got some ideas for us. 
um, you know, sky's the limit now. Send him our way. We're going all the way. We'll, we'll, we'll ask Joe Biden if he wants to be on, right? Because we are, he's spiritual, isn't he? We're, we're an award-winning spirituality podcast. Yeah. Let, let, let's, um, let's get him on here and cheer him on. Right? Oprah. Let's get Oprah. Let's get <laughs> Deepak. We'll get all those guys. Someone send letters out. All right. So I've got one for you. Um, this is in keeping with the thinking in Tickled. Uh, it's a little precision paradox, uh, but it, I just saw it last a uh, couple days ago. So there was um, uh, Stacey Abrams is um, a black female politician in Georgia credited with this sort of democratic resurgence in Georgia. She's running for governor mm-hmm. uh, in the state, um, but is um, the polls uh, are not looking good for her, right? So the prediction is that her Republican opponent will win. So in a story I was reading about her, uh, she said she refused to be counted out. And I suddenly realized what that means. It's like basically people have decided that they have counted their way to the future. Right? So they're counting something and saying, we've, we've done the count and you're out. And she's saying, no, uh, we're going to wait and see what happens. I'm not going to let you algorithmically predict the future. So don't count me out is essentially um, the lesson of the precision paradox. Don't use numbers to try to predict the future. You unless you're a pollster. Of, unless you're a pollster, which is what they do, right? But I haven't, I haven't talked about that in, in the book, right, where they were the last election. Mm-hmm. Nate Silver, who everybody's got such a hard-on for in politics, right, he basically said there's still a 10% chance that Donald Trump could win. And it's like, what the hell does that even mean? Right? Mm-hmm. He's either going to win or he's not. And if you're, if you're basically saying 10, you're saying, um, I uh, predict the other guy will win, but I want some credit uh, for predicting that Trump will win, even though I'm too much of a, a wimp to come out and say it. So you throw a 10% chance in, which basically means you're spreading your chips. You're not willing to say it's going to happen, but you want to be able to say that you said it might. We're not going to get into this again, are we? This is how probabilities work. Did we already do this? <laughs> we did We did a half a season of this in season one. But it's like, it's yeah. not, it's, it makes no sense. Anyway, don't count Stacey Abrams out. Uh, all right. So wrapping up here, Oriabindo, I was looking for a, a, um, something to do with um uh voice or narration to keep in keeping with um uh uh Sean Pratt but also the idea that um 
you know, you think you're the, so as an author, you think you're the writer of a book, right? So you think it's your book. And then you get a situation like we're in now where everyone listens to audiobooks. Um, you know, my name is on the thing, but it's also Sean Pratt's book, right? Because anyone, if there's all these people who've listened to it online, um, that, um, so basically this work of creativity is not just me, it's all the people at the publisher, but it's also Sean and his, his contribution to it, um, is significant for anyone who's an audio listener. So in, in here, I got two quotes for you. Um, the first one goes as follows through our egoism and ignorance, we are moved thinking that we are the doers of the work vaunting of ourselves as the real causes of the result. And that which moves us, we see only occasionally as some vague or even some human and earthly fountain of knowledge, aspiration, force, some principle of light or power, which we acknowledge and adore without knowing what it is until the occasion arises that forces us to stand arrested before the veil. So essentially what he's saying there is uh, we're not the doer. Um, uh, consciousness, uh, universal consciousness is the doer. And you occasionally realize that you're not the cause of all the things that happen to you. Um, but the, so the experience of having someone else narrate your book makes you realize you're not the doer, even of your own book. I don't know. I, I still feel like you, you wrote the book and, and he narrated it. Yes. Except for, um, someone on the other end in receipt of the audio book, it's a tag team, right? And, um, so the thing that they consumed, uh, has, was an equally important role. And, you know, it's, it's, it's just interesting to think it's like, to realize that it's like, oh, you're not the only one, right? There's also the people who put the word, like, you know, typeset yeah. it and designed it and all that other stuff. So, true. and then, true, and then true. the, and then the other one was, this one's more about voice. He said, there's a silence behind life as well as within it. And it is only in this more secret, sustaining silence that we can clearly hear clearly the voice of God. Not saying Sean Pratt's God, but basically in the silence, if you listen to your own silence, you can hear, uh, or even actually says, who else speaks to us on our journey? Right? So when you, when you're walking around and you, and you, hear yourself think right in whatever that internal voice is of your of your own not out loud and it's like what are you actually hearing the little voice in your head the little voice in your head but so it's so that's ostensibly you talking to you yeah in it's, what in what venue, as Sean Pratt would say, what is the where is that discussion happening? In the theater of the mind. In the theater. Of the <laughs> <mind>. <laughs> All right. So uh, where I say God is the main performer, that's my new realization. Who else speaks to us on our journey? It's the voice of God talking to you. All right. So thanks for listening, folks. We will be back with you in a week. Count me in. 
Listening to How to Tickle Yourself with your hosts Duff McDonald and Matt McButter. You can help us by liking, subscribing, and sharing this podcast with others. You can talk to us and see what else is happening on Instagram and Facebook at How to Tickle Yourself. This program was recorded in Studio B of the historic Rock Ledge Recording Studio and the Tunnel Under Arundel. Right here, right now, our original 16 part theme music was written and recorded by the legendary Paul Reddick and Kyle Ferguson of the Sidemen with the brilliant Steve Mariner on bass and drums and in the mixing room. The podcast is produced and distributed by Storic Media. Our editor is Andrew Steiner. Our coordinator is Samantha Abramovitz. Our producers are Kristen Verbitsky and Chuck LaBella. For more information, visit storicmedia.com. That's S-T-O-R-I-C-media.com. My love, my dear...